So we're looking at uh, 1 Kings chapter 11, reading from verse 14 uh, through to the end. 1 Kings 11, verse 14. Before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, So 1 Kings 11 verse 14, the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal house in Edom. Uh, For when David was in Edom and Joab the commander of the army went up to bury the slain, he struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all Israel remained there for six months until he had cut off every male in Edom. But Hadad fled to Egypt together with certain Edomites of his father's servants, Hadad still being a little child. They set out from Midian and came to Paran and took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house and assigned him an allowance of food and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him in marriage the sister uh, of his own wife the sister of Tapenes, the queen. And the sister of Tapenes bore him Genubath, his son, whom Tapenes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Genubath was in Pharaoh's house among the sons of Pharaoh. But when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers and that Job, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me depart that I may go to my own country. But Pharaoh said to him, What have you lacked with me, that you are now seeking to go to your own country? And he said said to him, Only let me depart. God also raised up as an adversary to him uh, Rezon, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his master Hadadezer, king of Zobah. And he gathered men about him and became leader of a marauding band after killing uh, after the killing by David. And they went to Damascus and lived there and made him king in Damascus. And he was the adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, doing harm as Hadad did. And he loathed Israel and reigned over Syria. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zerida, a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. And this was the reason why he lifted his hand against the kings. Solomon built the millow which, and, and closed up the breach of the city of David his father. The man Jeroboam was very able and when Solomon saw that uh, the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over the forced labor of the house of Joseph. And at that time, when Jeroboam went out uh, of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, uh, the, the Shilonite, found him on the road. And now... An- Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah told, laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. 
because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David his father did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life, for the sake of David my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand, and will give it to you, ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe, that David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you, and and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And you will listen to all that I command you, and I will will, will walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did. I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David. And I will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon sought, therefore, to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon and All that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. So we've been following uh, Solomon's life since the beginning of the book of Kings. Um, And how he came to the throne, and how he ruled with great wisdom. And um, as we come to chapter 11, the end of chapter 11, uh, we touch upon Solomon for the last time. And uh, although the chapter is not actually about Solomon, um, except at the very end, uh, in verses 41 to 43. So you see there in verses 41 to 43, that um, tells you where you can go to find out what what else that Solomon did. Uh, so there's another book, uh, the book of the Acts of Solomon. You can read about his wisdom in his other books, and we've got some of those in Scripture. Um, and it uh, tells us how long he reigned for, for 40 years. And, uh, and then that he slept with his fathers, which is a euphemism for he died. And uh, So he slept with his fathers and uh, was buried in Jerusalem. But the The rest of the chapter is not actually about Solomon any longer. It's actually about what God was doing around Solomon. And um, how he has raised up adversaries or enemies against Solomon. Now why would God do that? Uh, Now if you were here last week you'll, you'll know the answer to that. The answer is that God had so blessed Solomon had uh, given him so much wisdom, had called Solomon to to be a faithful servant, to obey his commands and statutes and laws, and uh, as such as the king of the people, to lead the people in following God and being faithful to God. And yet, at the end of his life, as we saw last week, as we looked at the beginning of chapter 11, he had drifted in his heart away from God. 
And so we find uh, in chapter 11, verse 9, uh, it says this, And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But that's exactly what he's done in the end. He has turned away from the living God, and he's begun to worship all these other gods. So when we looked at it last week, we saw that the issue for Solomon was the state of his heart and how uh, sin always begins in the heart and it, it issues in sinful actions and words and thoughts, but it actually begins in the heart. And if you're not faithful to God, then you're vulnerable to, the, uh, to falling into sin and uh, failing. And uh, so all sin, all sin begins there. And of course that means, uh, that just teaches us that uh, that last passage that we read was intensely relevant even to us. That we too fall into sin. And perhaps uh, there's a danger of us falling into sin even as we get older, as Solomon did. And the dangers of, of growing old um, and not having really dealt with your, uh, have your, your sin dealt with and acknowledged it. Um, so, the con- so that's the context for this. And, and what happens now is what happens around Solomon as a result. Um, and there's a connection here that is unmissable for us. It is that um, under the hand of God, this heart of unfaithfulness or the lack of it has consequences. So God does something actively in Solomon's life. And brings consequences. As we'll see, these are consequences that he he promised earlier. Uh, So the first thing to say from this passage is to remember that the Lord is in charge of history. That the Lord is sovereign over history. That's history of, at a macro level, international relations. And at a micro level, at our personal histories. The Lord is sovereign And uh, so we have this account here of uh, the raising up of three adversaries against Solomon. Uh, The first is Hedad, the the Edomites, in verse 14 onwards. And we're told a little story about uh, uh, the the life story of Hedad. He was an Edomite. Uh, The Edomites were the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob, remember? And um, uh, this Hadad had obviously been around as a child uh, at the time of King David in 2 Samuel chapter 8 when David was uh, gaining victories over his enemies. Uh, He was having to fight battles and win victories over enemies that were harassing the people of Israel. And uh, during that time he was able to flee as a child and go uh, go to Egypt. And clearly he'd done well for himself in Egypt. He'd been, he managed to get a um, he'd managed to get an allowance of some kind and uh, he was uh, he had found, eventually found favour in the sight of Pharaoh which is pretty high up and um, we uh, when David and Joab had died and he heard the news he wanted to go back then to, uh, to his hometown and uh, we don't know how he was an adversary yet so we'll well, come, 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 that will come up in a second, uh, but we're, we're not given any great details. So that's the first adversary Hadad. The second adversary is uh, Rezon, 
son of Eliada, uh, verses 23 to 25. And he too was affected by David's victories in 2 Samuel chapter 8. Um, he was a servant of King Hadadezer. And uh, Hadadezer was one of David's adversaries at the time. And, but Rezon escapes. Uh, and again, he becomes a, a leader of a kind of marauding band of renegades. And uh, he goes around, he becomes, becomes like a local warlord, um, fighting and raiding and uh, causing trouble wherever he went with his band of marauders. And uh, until eventually, uh, the people of Damascus want him to be king. Uh, that's kind of things, how things happen, isn't it? Uh, people get power, they exercise authority, and then uh, not all of it good. And uh, yeah, people want stability, and they invite him to be king over Damascus and over Syria. And from that vantage point, uh, Rezon begins to uh, do harm to Solomon, uh, just as Hadad did. So these two men, Hadad and Rezon, start doing harm to Solomon and to Israel. Uh, we don't know the details of that, but that's it's bad. And then the third person and is, is Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and uh, and he is a much more significant figure. And he's going to figure uh, a bit more in the chapters that come up. Uh, Jeroboam. Uh, he's going to be a significant figure in the northern tribes. And we'll see why in a minute. Uh, but one of the interesting things about Jeroboam is it's not just him, but it's his sins that keep coming back right into two kings. In First and Second Chronicles. Um, the sins of Jeroboam. So look out for the sins of Jeroboam that are going to be significant uh, in the days to come. And uh, we'll come to those in the fullness of time. So the question is, as God raises up these three adversaries, what can we learn from this about God? About how he does things? And of course, we can learn a great deal about the Lord in relationship to history. That God is clearly active in history. God does things. He is not passive. He is not hanging around watching what happens and just letting things unfold um, as they just unfold. Uh, He's actually active in the history of Solomon and the people of Israel. Now that's quite an alien idea to us in the modern world. Maybe even to some of us today. We don't think in terms of God being active in our lives in this way. We are uh, all our lives. We are trained to think in terms of causes and factors, you know, human factors or natural factors that that affect how things happen. Why did that happen? We try and find uh, human reasons within our grasp intellectually to try and make sense of it. But the thing that's missing is what is God doing? Is God in control? Is God in charge? And that's such an important question. And it's clear here that these adversaries that rise up are not just a kind of random thing that happens. But in verse 14, the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon. The Lord did it. It's not just in the lives of Christians either that the Lord is active. Even people who do not know God, God is active in their lives. I think one of the, it's all over scripture this, and one of the most striking examples I find that amazes me 
about God's activity in non-believers is Cyrus, king of Persia. Remember, he was head of a great Persian empire at one point. And in Isaiah 45, we're told this, 45 verse 1, he says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed Cyrus. <laughs> it's interesting, you know, anointed. What does that mean? We'll come to that in a second. His anointed Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. So this is a picture of of God using a, a pagan king for his purposes to affect other nations all around. And then in verse 5, Isaiah 45, 5, he says, I am the Lord, there is no other, besides me there is no God. I equip you, Cyrus, though you do not know me. It's interesting, isn't it? So what does anointing mean here? Equipping. Equipping for a task. And this is what God does. He equips people for the task that he has set out. And this may not be a Christian. It may be a pagan. Maybe somebody is a non-believer. And it's an intriguing thing, isn't it? That God can move great empires and the leaders of great empires for his purposes. God anoints people for the task. And he is able to use those people for the chastising of his own people who have forsaken him. In this case, it's Israel and Judah. And so this is all a testament to the power of God over men and nations. Um, This is what we call God's providence. God acts in providence in the universe, his managing of the affairs of men and creatures, people and creatures. So Westminster Confession 5.1, you know it. (laughs) On the section on providence, he says this, it says this, God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of his glory, uh, of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Westminster Confession 5.1. Now, that's a summary of biblical teaching to save me going all over the verses to show you. But we, we need to believe this with all our hearts, that God is in control of everything. He knows exactly what he's doing. He is not arbitrary either. So this is the next thing. So he's in charge, but he's not arbitrary. What governs how he does things? Well, it's his covenant promises. Um, God has made that prom- promises to his people. And the latest installment of that is the, is the promises made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 about a king who'd follow in his footsteps and somebody who would come and that his throne would endure forever. And so in a sense what God does is he, he's able, is totally free to do as he wills, but he binds himself to his covenant promises. So if he makes a promise about something, he's going to stick to that promise until it's fulfilled. And so everything serves that purpose of fulfilling that promise that he's made. 
And uh, so once he's made the promise, he, he sticks to it. And so what's the promise that's relevant here? Well, 2 Samuel 7, verses 14 and 15. To David, so through Nathan, God comes and speaks about this son who's going to come. And in the, in the first instance, he's talking about his, his own son, Solomon. Uh, and ultimately, he's talking about this, the greater son who will come. But he says, he says this, I will be to him, to Solomon, a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits an iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So the promise here is that if there's iniquity, and that that just means iniquity is all about the twistedness of the heart. And we've seen how Solomon's heart seemed to get twisted at the end of his life. That in his iniquity, God is going to bring uh, stripes, you know, the, the effects of kind of, beatings. Uh, he's going to chastise. That's a picture of you know, the chastisement that God brings on his people. Um, because Solomon's fallen badly and he's leading people into, into sin and so the, there'll be judgment at the hand of men against Solomon. And so hence God is raising up these adversaries against him. Well, is, are there any implications for us in this? Um, Here's the thing. We're not told in this way what's going to happen in our lives in the detail that Solomon is told. Um, and because we don't know, often our first thought when something bad happens is, why did that happen? We don't usually ask that if something good happens. We just take it. <laughs> but when something bad happens, we say, why? Why has God allowed that? And why is it, why is it happening to me? And one of the things we just need to learn is that there's nothing that happens to us that's outside of the Lord's control. He knows what he's doing. He knows why he's doing it. And whatever it is that happens to us, we need to know this, that it's consistent with his goals within the covenant that he's made with us. So we're in the new covenant. And uh, today... And so we, we know, for example, that Paul says, Romans 8.28, famous verse, he says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And in the midst of the biggest trials that we face, and some of us are facing terrible trials, I think, really difficult, we need to believe with all our hearts that God means it for good ultimately, and that he knows exactly what he's doing for us and and through us. That doesn't mean that we kind of uh, shrug our shoulders and roll our eyes and say, well, God has, had it. God has it in control. Uh, it sounds like a Calvinistic kind of thing to say, but it's kind of fatalistic if you have that kind of attitude, oh, well, God will do what God will do. Uh, because it's not really believing God's covenant promises. Yes, he's sovereign. Yes, he'll do what he wants to do. But we're called to actually believe his covenant promises. And so what do we do about this? Well, what we can do is we can pray about the situation. We have this relationship, covenant relationship with God that involves prayer. So we pray about the situation. And there's no problem at all in expressing your thinking and your desires and your hearts to God. And sometimes it sounds like you're pushing the boundaries of, of acceptable speech to God. But uh, God actually is more interested in the fact that you're talking to him. 
He doesn't want you to avoid him and pretend he's not there. Or somehow he holds it against you. He wants you to come to him. Talk to him. That's the story of Job, isn't it? You know, he sinned when he was speaking to God, but he's talking to God, you see. And that's what matters. And uh, so you pray to God. But then as you pray, you believe that he is utterly consistent in the commitments he has made in the covenant relationship he's made with you through Jesus Christ. That he knows exactly what he's doing and why he's doing it. And then as you do all that, so you're praying and you're believing the covenant promises, you're also examining your own heart. Examining your heart for sins. You know, that's the thing that Solomon didn't do. But you examine your heart for sins that are there. And you pray to God, Lord, search me and know my heart. See if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139 at the end, somewhere. Uh, you do that. Seek to examine your heart in the, in the light of, uh, under the hand of God. And believe this about God, you see. Um, again, Westminster Confession, chapter 5, verse, uh, paragraph 5 says this, that God does this to his people to chastise his own children for their former sins, to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled. You see, there's a purpose behind our afflictions that will cause us to examine our hearts and humble us before God. And then God in his grace is able to then raise us up. Give us grace and raises us up. So, and, and then the last thing is simply, once you, you know, when you're praying and you're believing and trusting God in the midst of it, wait for him. Wait, wait for him to work it out. See how it plays out. Uh, Psalm 27 Verse 13, in the face of adversaries, David says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. Wait. Just keep waiting. And he will see you through. Well, that's the Lord in history. Let's move on a bit and speak about... uh, the remainder of this introduction to Jeroboam from verse 28 onwards. And uh, here we're going to think about, the, about prophecy and the will of God. And um, So we've got this description, of it, a very lengthy description of um, Ahijah, this prophet, who turns up uh, and he meets Jeroboam on the road. He kind of appears from nowhere and he meets Jeroboam and then he, he takes his new garment, whatever kind of garment it was, a cloak or something, and he rips it into 12 pieces. What a waste, <laughs> you might think. So, but he does it, and he rips it into 12 pieces, and he, set, and he offers 10 of them, those pieces, to Jeroboam. And then there ensues a conversation about what he's just done. And he begins to unfold a prophecy about what's going to happen to Jeroboam. And uh, we don't really know anything about Ahijah, other than he's from Shiloh. I mean, he'll appear again in chapter 14. But uh, for now, all we need to know is that he's, he's God's man for God's moment. There's a, there's a reason why he's there. God has put him there. And uh, God kind of drops him into the situation. And as it were, he brings God's word into the situation. And so he, 
He starts this prophetic word with a strange action of ripping up the garment into 12 pieces and offering 10 of them to Jeroboam. But then he interprets the action. Um, you know, these, these prophetic actions you find in the Bible are not self-interpreting. <laughs> As one commentator said, you know, uh, any, any action can bear a variety of uh, interpretations. Um, did Ahijah mean the textile industry was going to ruin <laughs> by the ripping of these, this cloak? Or was it for Mrs. Jeroboam to make a new quilt with it? <laughs> Which I thought was a great suggestion. <laughs> uh, you know, you can interpret an action in so many different ways, can you? What are you going to make of this? And, but Ahijah has the interpretation as well. It's really important for understanding miracles, by the way. Uh, they're not always self-interpreting. They need to be explained. And Ahijah explains that these 12 pieces represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And that 10 of them are going to go to Jeroboam in the future. Uh, now, why is, th- why is that little story important? Well, first of all, it tells us not only is God sovereign about the present, but he's actually sovereign over the future as well. He knows what's going to happen. And here's, uh, so there's a plan. He knows what's coming next. Indeed, he is working it out. But he does so in such a way that it doesn't involve him sinning. And he's able to use evil and weave it into his good purposes. It's such a fundamental thing to get as a Christian. God is able to use evil. He doesn't cause evil, nor is he the evildoer, but he is able to use evil and weave it into his good purposes. We've got to believe that. Look at the cross. That's what the cross is. All that evil that caused Jesus to be killed, and yet is the most important event in all of biblical history, that Jesus Christ died for sinners. Now, there is, a, there is, of course, mystery in this. Um, but he does, he does this in such a way that he himself does not sin. He cannot sin. And therefore, because he is sovereign over the future, we can continue to trust him for the future. Because that's the kind of God he is. He is utterly trustworthy and faithful. Now, in our lives, I don't know about you, I don't know if you know how your life is going to play out. But I, I think we know two things, don't we? All of us know at least two things. We know where we are today. And we know ultimately where we're going to go. We're going to glory. We're going to share with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're saved and redeemed. We're adopted and justified and sanctified and ready for heaven. And that's where we're going to go. We're going to share in his glory. So we know, know where we are now. We know the end point. The thing we don't know is the path that gets us ultimately there. But we know it's going to happen. We're going to get there. God causes his saints to, to persevere. Um, and um, we may not like that path. And we may find many things about it difficult. But we know that he's there with us, doing it. God knows what the future is. He knows where he's going with us. And we don't know the details. We, work, we, we discover the details as we go along, don't we? Uh, often... I didn't know I was going to be a minister one day. <laughs> I thought it was going to be something else, totally. But here I am, as a minister. And maybe you're 
life is going to completely change in the future as well. And maybe you're going to face some difficulty, real big trial in your life. You don't know about it. But God knows. He knows how to take you through it as well. He is the God of the future. And, um, you know, you might die tonight and go to glory. God knows. You might live for another 80 years. Only God knows that. And he's going to take you through that as you trust in him. You don't know what's going to happen, but the Lord does. And he will lead you through it all, all the good and the bad. And he'll be there and he will be with you. So that's what I think the prophecy is about. Now, uh, let me just finally uh, finish off with a glimmer of hope for the future. Because it sounds pretty bad for Israel. Because uh, Jeroboam is given, um, you know, the kingship of Solomon is turned into something of a disaster. Uh, his heart is turned away from the Lord. But we must believe in the midst of all of that, that God's promise, his covenant promises, have not been cancelled. God's ultimate promise has not been cancelled, even if the short-term future looks bad. So Jeroboam is told that he's going to rule over uh, ten tribes. So verse 37, And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel, those ten tribes. Um, And then a similar charge is given to to Jeroboam. uh, A charge in verse 38 that comes with a promise. Uh, And if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David. And I will give Israel to you. So there's a good promise there. Now this is, um, so God is sovereign over history, but he's also the covenant-making God. And as part of his covenant, he makes charges. He uh, charges Jeroboam to follow him and to be faithful uh, to him. Um, David is going to suffer. So David is, the, the, the offspring of David is going to be left. He's not going to be part of Jeroboam's tribe, uh, collection of tribes. Um, and there's going to be affliction, verse 39. I will afflict the offspring of David because of this. And then he says this, but not forever. But not forever. And here we have this little glimmer of hope that all the disaster that seems to be about to happen to David's family is not going to be forever. That there, is, uh, there will be affliction for God's people, but there will not be elimination. God sets the limits of afflictions on his people. God determines the extent to which afflictions are going to affect his people. And so as one commentator puts it, uh, the rays of hope flicker from the clouds of judgment. The rays of hope flicker from the clouds of judgment. Friends, that's what uh, New Testament Christians faced. They had to come to terms with the rays of hope in the, in the midst of the clouds of uh, chastising judgment. Um, think about the book of Hebrews. They've been studying midweek. And... Um, Here we have a group of believers um, uh, made up of Hebrews, but probably Gentiles as well. And uh, and the writer to the Hebrews says this in chapter 10, verse 32. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Think about how they 
first came to Christ. And he says, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to, to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. They were treated badly as Christians, new Christians. And, and later in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer to the Hebrews is going to talk about how the sufferings uh, that they face are in the hands of God. And that God is actually using it for training. That people are being trained in righteousness so that their lives grow in the fruit of righteousness. And their lives change through the afflictions. Um, And it's kind of a a sort of tempering, annealing process, if you're an engineer, that actually makes strength in his people, builds strength in and so this, uh, this fruitfulness shows us that actually even though Christians sometimes have to endure suffering and chastisement under the hand of God, God has it under control and he has purpose in it. What's going to keep you trusting God through those times of trial and testing? Well, I think the answer would be in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 where the, the writer says, we have this, this is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone. So where's Jesus now? He's gone in behind the curtain of the heavenly temple and he ministers there for us. So we have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's the forerunner. We will follow as he takes us through all those trials. What keeps us in the knowledge, uh, keeps us is the knowledge of the sufferings of Jesus Christ for our sake. And we see how now he has gone to heaven. And we will be there one day And he has opened the way for us through his flesh. He is the sacrificial offering that has made the way open to us. And because he is there, there is an anchor in heaven. I think I find it quite an evocative image that in the kind of bobbing ship of our lives, (laughs) bobbing around in all the kind of uncertainty of life, there's this anchor that's kind of hooked into heaven. Because Jesus Christ is there. And so what we need to do is remember that. And remember him raised up at the right hand of the Father. Keep him ever before us in our thinking and our prayers. And we'll see, he will see us through. Um, he'll keep us steady in every trial. Even though our trials may be caused by our own sins. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that uh, you're the Lord of history and that uh, uh, sometimes you raise up adversaries which uh, we can't explain. Uh, Father, we confess to you that uh, we find it too easy to want to be liked as Christians and uh, to have a nice and easy life. But uh, Lord, we know your word doesn't promise us that, but it promises us that we will get to the end destination, uh, that the remnant of your people will stand 
and uh, you will preserve us to the end. You just call us to be faithful and to continually uh, look to you for help and strength. And we pray you'd help us be faithful to you in Jesus' name. Amen.